0: to Slip Angle Show. I'm Austin Cabot, and today we are in Hawthorne, California. Believe this is Hawthorne. Uh, I'm joined by Mike Kojima. What's up, Mike?
1: Hey, everybody. What I like about this place is we're right next to SpaceX. We are, like, literally
0: <laughs> right next door to SpaceX, and right across the street is the Hyperloop. So... We're right here in the thick of, uh, of all the budding technology that's going on here in Southern California, if not the world.
1: And a little-known fact that Moto IQ actually dynoed a Hyperloop car before. Oh, really? Yeah, for wow. Sweden's team.
0: Nice. Very so, nice.
1: We didn't have anything to do with it. We just let them use our dyno, though. Yeah. So no cool story. Were we able to
0: create a vacuum inside to, to simulate real-world performance?
1: Yeah, and I was wondering what happened to everybody.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but today... Um, you guys have not heard from myself or from mike in a while but we've been trying to get this guest on for a long time uh we're joined by ben Schaefer from unplugged performance and bulletproof automotive what's going on ben
2: what's going on glad to have you guys over this is very cool
0: yeah i think we've been talking about this probably since what maybe february yeah so
2: probably at probably like eight eight months or so at least yeah we've had some fun conversations and we've been doing some interesting stuff together seeing some teslas out at the racetrack so it's cool to uh have you in our, our little pocket of uh, the land of Elon over here in Hawthorne. <laughs> yeah. He seems to kind of run this town, but we have our own little our own little piece of the puzzle, a yeah. tiny piece.
0: Kind of like fits in, like right here in, you know, you've kind of inserted yourself right in the center. Or I guess it's more likely that you guys were here and it just kind of built up around you.
2: It's so a little of both. It's a, yeah, it's a bit of a coincidence in some respects. You know, wh- when, we, uh, when we moved to this office, we didn't expect to be working on anything related to that. We weren't involved in Teslas at all. And uh, that was about 2012, 2013. And um, for anyone that has heard of our other company, Bulletproof Automotive, we've been around for a while. Uh, I started that back in the year 2000, so we're going on 20 years. And that business is really a lot of just like hardcore Japanese tuning, a lot of Nissan GTRs and things like that. So when we ended up here in Hawthorne, we didn't really think about what our neighbors were doing other than I thought Tesla was kind of a cool brand. But you know, 2012, 2013, there wasn't really much to it. Um, and then over time, uh, there became a lot to it. It became pretty interesting. So yeah, you know, from our side, within about a year of moving in here, we were doing a lot of really crazy GTR builds uh, like we're kind of accustomed to doing. And a couple of the guys from Tesla next door took some interest in what we were doing, started asking us some questions about how we were tuning the GTRs, and said a few words of encouragement that, to me, sounded like, oh, this is a cool opportunity. I have interesting neighbors. They like our stuff. Let me drive a Model S. And I drove a Model S once, and that was it. Like, after that, I knew that was where we had to go. Yeah, I mean, so what's interesting to me
0: is there. there's a lot of, I guess, automotive enthusiasts that have been around in the internal combustion world for a long time. Sure. And haven't ever gone to drive a Tesla. Yeah. Um, so they immediately have these preconceived notions of what it might be like, and that the performance might not be that great. But yeah. Obviously, like you said, and like I've experienced this summer, you know, I went and drove a, a Model 3 uh, dual motor performance package and was completely blown away by
2: it. Yeah, you know, the the thing that I think is easy to understand, and this is maybe the easiest way for me to explain it, is I at, at that time have been in the tuning industry for 12 years, and obviously I'm a fan of many cars and I have a you know, a background of different cars that I, I've owned and that I enjoy driving and tuning. Um, but whether it's you know on the OE side what these manufacturers do to optimize their cars or whether it's the tuning side, when you see manufacturers advancing transmissions and going you know from old school manual to you know uh, the DSG when BMW came out with that and now you know the more, the faster and faster shifting transmissions that are out there now, like the new Porsche one is amazing. Yeah, um, They're measuring how fast it shifts gears. And then when you talk about you know motors and optimization, you can have debates about NA versus turbo versus supercharge, and everyone's fighting for response time. And then when you drive a Tesla, you realize, well, for one, for transmission, you can't get faster shifting than having no shifting at all. And then when it comes to torque optimization and efficiency of the motor, you can't get faster than having 100 percent torque on demand instantaneously yeah so for me it was like never mind any bias i had about is electric cool or not cool just looking at it objectively like you're not going to beat either of those things in terms of any technique you have you can't be faster than instant for shifting which doesn't exist or power output and those were compelling facts to me when i drove the car it seemed to me like this is A foundation that's very interesting, and that it's only going to get better. And that was 2013, and it's gotten a hell of a lot better since then. And I think people are starting to pick up on it. But the fastest way to pick up on it is to drive one. Like it's just totally different than anything else you can drive.
0: Yeah, for sure. Hey, Mike, have you have you
1: driven a Tesla yet? Not yet.
2: No? Uh, Oh man.
1: You're going to let me drive one of yours, but for some reason we got sidetracked. Hey, anytime. Um, We'll make it happen. I used to think electric cars were like lame tree-hugger things, uh, (laughs) but actually the technology, maybe if you're an early adopter was something like that, but uh, let me backtrack. I mean, years ago, I was an engineer at Nissan, so I got to experience the first prototype electric Nissan cars, and uh, being an engineer, I was forced to be part of the test fleet for the long-term testing, so I had to drive one, and that thing was a big turd pile, and um, (laughs) Uh, there was this time when I went out to dinner with my wife, and she was cold, and she goes, um, I, "I really need to turn on the heater." I go, "No, you don't want to do that." She goes, "Why?" I go, "Well, we might not make it home." <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes, "I'm going to turn on the heater." So she turns on the heater, and uh, it depleted the battery like so quickly that, really, yeah, we were in limp mode like the last <laughs> mile, like going yeah, 50 that sucks. miles an hour, and. Uh, then I plugged the car into the home charger, and it took three days to charge oh, it up geez. so I could drive it back to Nissan. Oh, um, I go, yeah, I don't think the world is ready for this <laughs> yet. Uh, but Yeah,
2: it's come a long way. I mean, just yesterday, Tesla updated their data for the Model S, and now it does 373 miles on a battery charge. Wow. And you start to get to a point where no one cares anymore. I think we're starting to get there. In the beginning, these cars were getting like 50 miles or 100 miles, and that kind of sucks. But when you're past 300, getting into 400, at some point, you know they call it range anxiety amongst EV owners. I don't know what range anxiety would be once you're past 400 miles or 500 miles, because you're only going to drive so much in a day, anyways. Yeah. So I think we're starting to get there. You know, every year, there's a lot of valid reasons as to why you know an electric car isn't the right kind of car. Uh, but every year the cars get better, and some of these things fall by the wayside. In terms of motorsports, for example, when we started. Uh, our first Tesla Corsa event, and we can give some background into that over today's conversation, but the first event, we had almost only Model S's because the Model 3 hadn't come out. And the Model S's, the big complaint, if you were a car enthusiast, was you can't take these cars to the racetrack because they basically overheat and go into lip mode after like two minutes. You know, When I drove mine, I maybe got one lap in before I just had to start driving around the fact that the car had no power. Um, so that first event was kind of a bummer that you know, every Model S was hampered by that. But the Model Three came out, and the technology changed significantly in terms of cooling. And now we run full sessions without any problems. And now the Model S is starting to catch up to that as well. Mm-hmm. So, whatever the category may be, whether it's like daily driven in range, or whether it's you know drag racing, the cars are crazy right now. So there's no reason not to like them for that, um, or d- to dislike them for that. I would say overall, every category they're starting to kind of defeat the opposition in terms of why they're not good. Mm-hmm. And you start to just end up with people that, you know, formulate their opinion based on the reasons why we're all in this, which is like, you know, we're we're opinionated car enthusiasts. So like we debate, you know, what engine sound sounds the best, and when you have no engine sound, yeah, that kind of sucks. Uh, there are some things that, you know, are just pure opinion. But in terms of on paper, it's getting harder and harder to beat electric cars. In terms of opinion, there's always going to be debates, and that's what makes this stuff fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, so for me, we're talking about the sound. For me, the, the freakiest thing, running events, especially running your Tesla Corsa events, is I'll be there having a conversation with somebody, and if it's too quiet at the track for too long, you start kind of freaking out. You go, yeah. okay, what's wrong on track? Where's the red flag? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you turn around, and there's cars driving around on track, you know, and it's, <laughs> you, they just don't make hardly any noise. It's, it's yeah. really kind of a cool thing, to be honest.
2: It's pretty It's pretty weird. Um, you know we were joking if we had a bigger budget for tesla course i wanted to hire like a classical orchestra to play music while the cars <laughs> are driving just because you could yeah it'd be just so stupid but yeah. you could you could definitely do it it's that quiet out there
0: well, what's interesting to me you look at some of these tracks like laguna sake and others that are having increasingly more stringent noise limitations yeah um, you know electric cars kind of solve that to be honest
2: yeah i mean electric cars definitely would. Uh, solve that, but you got bigger problems as far as charging infrastructure, and right. that's that's the hurdle that we're up against. It's still a little bit early in the world of just uh, you know electric car racing uh, or Tesla Motorsports, and in, in our case, um, where we really have to pick and choose not just the venue, but the number of cars we can allow out there because these cars got to charge up between right. sessions.
0: And it's not as simple as just getting you know charging stations installed. You have to make sure that the power grid can actually handle precisely the tracks. Much even power. if they
2: have the money, sometimes they can't. Install it without, you know, doing a major overhaul, oh, which would take years. service from yeah. the power company, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I think it'll get there, but we're not we're not ready yet, yeah. unfortunately.
0: Have you heard of any track yet in the country that's installed, you know, at least a, a bunch of supercharger stations?
2: I don't think I no. have. No. I mean, yeah, the, I the, the cool story that all the Tesla owners like, and I think is pretty cool, is Tesla's been getting more involved out at the Nurburgring. And I think kind of as like a big FU to to Porsche and everyone out there, they installed the supercharger at the ring. Oh, really? Which I thought was pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, I think it was just the two-car charger. Okay. But seeing stuff like that's really cool. I know they don't really have the budget to do that at Laguna Seca or something as a permanent installation. I wish they would. Um, But someday, you know, someday that's going to happen. It's just a matter of how long we have to wait for it. Yeah. I mean, so
0: looking forward for, like, you know, future electric car racing, one thing that I just thought about was that as a like a crew chief, you're not going to have to worry about coming in under anymore because you don't have to worry about fuel. You know, the yeah. weight of the vehicle doesn't seem to fluctuate a whole lot, which also means that performance should stay, you know, relatively linear aside from tire wear and brake wear. Correct. You know, the, the balance is going to be the same almost all the time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of consistency um, and just a lot of variables removed with an electric car. So but this is kind of i i suppose more of the the um philosophical question is as electric cars become more dominant there's a lot of simplicity in that and a lot of what makes us like cars is the complexity right. so you start to get into this kind of balance of analog versus digital which is already i find to be a fascinating conversation because i happen to like manual transmission cars um but in every aspect that philosophical debate is is a, a worthy one to have you know for for tesla um another one of the ways I, i'd like to explain it uh, when I first got the car, because no one understood them, was I come from a background of you know, learning how to drive a manual cars. And I still love having old manual cars that have you know, no electronic aids. And that's three-pedal driving. And then you, you know, get frustrated because you know, a lot of the car manufacturers won't even offer a manual anymore. So you're down to two-pedal driving. And then I got a Model S, and I was down to one-pedal driving because <laughs> the, the brake regen is so strong, so strong. on it that right. it basically does your braking for you. And the first night I drove my Model S, I was freaking out because i see my brake lights lighting up in the rear view, and I wasn't you know touching, the touching the brakes. <laughs> and I'm like, what What the hell is going on with this car? But uh, you realize after driving a Tesla that you almost never even touch the brakes. So you really go from three pedals down to two, down to one, and now that we're talking about autonomous cars coming into play, zero. so you go down to zero. Yeah. So we're basically watching the pedals disappear, and I think that's interesting and i'm equally impressed and utterly frustrated because i still love manual cars but i come from the mindset that you can have both i actually really like driving a tesla with autopilot as a daily and i like having i have e30 m3 and a a 72 hakoska skyline gtr i like those older cars because they're not terribly fast but they're very engaging and you feel it when you're driving the tesla i can kind of zone out and those cars i don't want to zone out i want to be in the moment And I think that's a good balance.
0: Yeah, you know, I think I heard somebody say it somewhere, but it's almost like driving your own car will be almost like riding a horse eventually. You can still do it, it just might not be the most efficient way to actually get somewhere.
2: Yeah, and I think, like, you know, for the kind of scope of, you know, people that are into this stuff, that might be a good thing, because this is also really kind of a a debate in terms of philosophy, but... um, you know track focused cars belong on the track and are made for a singular purpose and as you get into a world where you have a lot of cars that are electric and autonomous and whatever if anything that's going to increase track day culture and increase these kind of track resorts like Thermal and others and you're going to see a lot more focused track cars because they're not needing to be a compromised build where you're you know trying to spread a budget and spread a use case across you know a car that has a super stiff suspension and a really loud exhaust system and right. all these, you know, no ground clearance and trying to bring it to the grocery store with your wife. Like you can build a car for one purpose and have a at that point you might not even have a car. You might just have, you know, an autonomous Uber equivalent, which is yeah. what Tesla is trying to get into. Um so in some respects, like from a purist standpoint, maybe that's a good thing that you can, you know, have a full race car that's at the track. That's that's your kind of horse scenario. Mm-hmm. Um but then again from my side of tuning, like my preference of tuning is I like driving to the track, you know, tracking the car and driving home and having one car that does everything well. So for me, that doesn't fit my philosophy, but it, I think it would fit others. Right. And there's not really a one size fits all. But um, I think we're headed there either way, whether we like it or not.
0: I'm still waiting for the day where I can get an autonomous driving RV and be able to get it to drive me to the track, towing my race car while I hang out in the back and cook dinner. I and love sleep. that. That would be the best thing. We're not
2: ever. far. I don't think we're that far away. Yeah. <laughs> it'd, <Yeah>.
0: be, <laughs> it'd be the best thing ever, man. It really would. Yeah, So let's let's take it back a little bit, you know, kind of with your history and, and what kind of got you into cars.
2: Oh, man. Um, it doesn't really make a lot of sense in hindsight. I, no one in my family was really into cars. You know, usually you hear something about, you know, someone growing up with their dad or someone and it was in their lineage. It wasn't really for me. Um, I just always was into cars. Like when I was six years old, I, you know was fluent on like all the models of all the Porsches and all the Ferraris and everything. And I read all the I'm not sure if it was Auto Trader or whatever the book was back in like the 80s. I'd read all that stuff and I was just into it. And I was there was no rhyme or reason as to why. I just thought it was cool. And you know, I had the Lamborghini and Ferrari poster on my wall and just like everyone did back then. And uh uh you know for me I basically started doing you know stupid things like street racing when I was in high school and uh you know gradually realized that it was an expensive hobby and I didn't have money so I had to figure out kind of a side hustle to make money to go to the track so I started selling parts and I kind of fell into starting uh Bulletproof when I was in college doing that just to kind of pay for you know my my silly hobby which has somehow turned into a 20-year career but uh at the end of the day, like, you know, I just like screwing around with cars and, and having a good time. And, yeah. and uh, that's been that way my whole life.
0: What were what were your first cars that you had?
2: Uh, well, I got my driver's license in 97 and I bought a used 93 uh, Prelude VTEC. OK. And used to so were
0: the ones with a crazy dash, right? Yeah, and, like, goes the, all the ran way the whole way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: So I got a manual transmission, one of those and did like a, I think I had like a 60 shot of nitrous on it and intake header exhaust. OK. And, some springs and some, you know, shiny wheels at first and then got some T37s when those came out. And, uh, you know, I just always was like, I always had kind of a side hustle where I'd make some money and I pour it all into the car. And then over time, I realized, you know, this is consuming a lot of my time and a lot of my money. I better get more efficient at my side hustle and sell more stuff. So I started selling. At first, I started selling brake pads and helmets to track day guys. That was the first stuff okay. I sold was uh, my first account was the Porter Field selling brake pads. And then. Was selling helmets, and I was super into Japanese culture back then. So uh, uh, ended up basically having one of my Japanese friends, and we started cold calling all the advertisers in Option Magazine, trying to find the best price points on Japanese tuning parts. And I just started pre-selling and importing Japanese tuning parts back in like summer of 2000. Okay. And
0: uh, like right before the Fast and Furious boom.
2: Yeah, I was I was in the first Fast and the Furious back when they they called it Red Line. Uh, I was at. I think it was a, import night, a hot, important night show, maybe, in LA. And they had some casting guy there for like street racers for some background scene of some unknown oh, really? movie. And uh, that actually, you know, it sounds like so cliche and silly, but that actually changed my life in, a, in, a, in an unusual way, because I was a student at that time in Arizona. And I happened to drive to Cali for a weekend to go to this car show, happened to see this casting thing, and happened to decide to do it. I took a week off of school from Arizona State and came out for filming. The craziest thing of all is we actually filmed a block away from here for the the street racing scene where the cops come in and and bust Paul and Vin. That was on Prairie right next to here. So it really went full circle. But what ended up happening was I was on set for a week and I saw all these people in the industry that were like making a living doing it. And to me, I never thought about my business as a career. I thought of it as just like I'm going to keep paying for track day events and tires. Uh, But when I was there on set, kind of like opened up my eyes to this word entrepreneurship, which I live by now, but back then I was a marketing major and I was just going to get a job somewhere and do whatever I was going to do. Long story short, uh, I did another week of filming for uh, uh, Race Wars, which ended up being a San Bernardino Airport, and then ended up dropping out of Arizona State for a semester. I ended up transferring to USC's entrepreneur program, moved to California, brought the business out here. And been out here ever since. But all of that happened by going to a car show and wow. just becoming like, you know, some random extra. Right place, right In time, the movie. Huh? Yeah. So Man. it's weird how life works. And yeah. it's super weird that my office is right a block away from where I was filming. That actually didn't occur to me until last year. Oh, really? That I'm actually here in the same <laughs> spot that this all started. Man. So life works in very strange and mysterious ways. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, you know, when you started Bulletproof, what were the main things and main chassis that you guys were focusing on? I was a Honda guy. I mean, a lot of people were back then. You know, I started with the Prelude VTEC, but when I started Bulletproof, it was like right in the beginning of the Honda S2000 start. And I was really into that. And uh, I still had that same S2000 that I had back oh, then. Really? And yeah, we were, you know, Bulletproof was one of the first companies to really focus on the S2000. And mm-hmm. we had a pretty big following in the S2000 market, if I would say from 2000 to like 2007 or eight, like. At a certain point, it started to become really a downer for me being in that market, not because the car got bad, but just because I really like companies that invest into, you know, R&D and good products. And like in 2007 or eight, it became just everything knockoff. And it got so bad in the community where like if you bought something legit, people would like trash you because you are like, oh, you're so stupid. You spent money on legit parts. I got this, you know, knockoff Sabon hood. Like, why would you buy a Mugen one or why would you buy a top secret one when you can buy the same thing? And... Like, the ethics of the community... Like, I know people love their cars, but for me, it became really depressing. So, I kind of just moved on to other cars, but I still have a, a soft spot for the S2000. Yeah. You
0: know, I, I owned an S2000 for, like, seven or eight years, and I still have a soft spot in my heart for it's one it of the too. best cars
2: I, of all time. Yeah. Like, it doesn't get old, and just that... That concept, and by the way, one of the things talking about manuals that I loved about the S two thousand was they won't offer an automatic. Yeah, I respect any car where you just can't get an auto. They're just like, this is not for you if you want an auto. Yeah. If you can't drive a manual, find a different car. Yeah, I like that. I like the fact that it's just a raw, lightweight driver's car. And unfortunately, they don't make that many cars like that anymore. Uh, it's really a bummer. But yeah, the S two thousand is a classic. It's a keeper. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah.
0: And what's crazy, you know, I think Mike and I have talked about it on previous shows. The S2000's been around for 20 years now, and they're still developing parts and kind of pushing Good. You know, pushing you know, the, the limits of what they can do. And they, they keep should. going faster and faster. Yeah, I mean, It's a killer platform. Yeah, it really is. So like when the FRS came out, everybody was talking about how it didn't have a whole lot of potential. You know, and everyone's like, oh, why don't you buy an S2000 instead? But I, you know, I tried to make the point like, hey, guys, this is a brand new car. Like, people are just skimming the surface of what you can actually do with it.
2: Exactly. I don't know if you know our story with the FRS. No. Uh, the car's at the Peterson Museum, full-time at, on an exhibit. Uh, we, uh, we partnered with Scion when they came out with that car and did a, a build for them uh, for SEMA that we ended up then taking to Japan, to Tokyo Auto Salon, and then took it to Scuba and had uh, one of the famous drivers in Japan, uh, Tenaguchi, Nibutero Tenaguchi, drive it at Scuba uh, and then brought it out to Fuji Speedway and then... Eventually brought it back to the States, and then Peterson keeps it on permanent display out here in LA oh, wow, I didn't to represent that. Japanese tuning. Okay. And the concept for that car, I mean, it, I went through the same thought process you had. I got it, and I thought, oh man, the, the chassis is really good, but the motor, like, the S2000 had a better motor like 15 whatever years <laughs> yeah. ago. I'm like, how can this be that you can have a car that's like so good in some respects, and the motor is just so not good? Um, but, you know, it was early days for the car, so we, we built it up to about almost 500 horsepower uh, and did a really nice build on it. But our concept for the build, which is, I guess, really kind of my philosophy of, of tuning, was we wanted to build, we called it a baby LFA. And the goal was to kind of take a driver's car that they don't make in, a, in a, an automatic transmission that's, you know, FR layout, rear drive, like all the purest stuff that I like, and I wanted to send it to Japan and benchmark it against the Ferrari Italia and the LFA at Scuba. Mm. So we basically built the car for that, spent a whole bunch of money making the interior super nice and making it basically a luxury, like high-end, high-quality build where there was no cut corners. We spent a lot of money on that car. Sent it out there and, uh, yeah, we basically benchmarked the lap time uh, spot on with the Ferrari Italia, which we actually couldn't find a lap time for the LFA at Scuba, which was the really? only problem with our concept is I wanted to get the equivalent time and I couldn't. But I found that the LFA was pretty much on par with the Italia, so we kind of used that as a benchmark. We were spot on. I forget the exact time it was. It was within a second oh, wow. of that. Okay. Uh, without really any practice slaps or any shakedown, we just gave it to Option Magazine to let them That's bring it out and test yeah. it. And then we had uh, a company called The Muse. We had the president of The Muse draft it out there as well. Fun project. Uh, yeah, the car is just hanging out at Peterson, so if anyone's listening in L.A., it should be uh, on display there. It has been for a while. Okay, fun project.
0: You'll have to look for that next time I'm yeah.
2: there. 86s are awesome. Yeah, they're great cars. I wish yeah. they came with S two thousand motors.
0: Yeah. Well, what <laughs> I what I love right now is the fact that they are coming down on the used market a lot. You can find one for like ten to twelve grand now, and I think it's actually oh that's a good buy. To me, that's when yeah. I had mine. I always thought it was a good ten to twelve thousand dollar car. I didn't think it was the best twenty five thousand dollar car like it was when I got it. Yeah. For fair a brand enough. new car, it was a great twenty five thousand dollar car, but opportunity cost. That ten to twelve thousand dollar range is kind of, to me, where it sits. But do you go for that
2: or S2000? Ooh, I don't know. If S they were the same price, S2000s are coming up a little bit,
0: right? So what I always found interesting, the driving dynamic of the FRS and BRZ to me was better. The S2000 always seems to rotate around the engine. Is kind of what it yeah. feels like. Yeah. And the FRS and BRZ feel like they rotate around the driver. Mm. So it's a little bit of a different kind of a different driving experience a little bit to me yeah and I always felt just a little bit more confident driving an FRS or BRZ than I did with an S2000.
2: I agree I'm not as good of a driver as you but I can feel that even being an amateur super novice driver you can feel the difference yeah I mean, to me to me I half joking half serious said you know if you can have the transmission and the motor out of the S2000 with the chassis and setup of the 86 that would be the winner
0: yeah and I think actually one of our, our listeners um, Justin Kelly I think that's his name out of like nebraska or somewhere actually just finished it so he put an s2000 motor in an frs yeah and raced it at, uh, i think he raced it at one of the grid life touring cup
2: the season finale at gingerman nice. at i Road love America. the s2000 swaps on the hachirokus the old ones yeah. i've seen a few of those yeah. but i haven't seen them as much on the new 86s so yeah i think
0: that was the i think that was the, mainly the first one that was done and he just That's some cool. dude that did
1: it in his garage
0: Good stuff. Conversely,
1: I really hate the chassis. Do you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean,
0: you deal with it, like, every day, and you're all right. fighting all these battles with it all the time for, well, for Dice car.
1: Uh, not even Dice car, but, Just in like, general? Uh, you know, I've been involved with the various evasive time attack ones and uh, the Pikes Peak car and Dice car. And To me, like, the suspension is, like, parts been engineering, mm. and it's mm. kind of screwed up. Like, the toe curve in the rear is really bad. Um, I think the steering geometry, the Ackerman curve is bad. And uh, those are really difficult things for the average enthusiast fix. to fix. Right. So um, maybe, you know, like when you're in a really low horsepower car like the FA, it's not so much of an issue. But uh,
0: when you start pushing the limits like you guys did. Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: you know, like the. The type attack car makes like clo- like a thousand horsepower and <laughs> uh, the drift car makes over a yeah. thousand and even the uh, FA equipped cars made you know in the high 400 range and uh, yeah then the shortcomings of the, the car suspension become like really apparent yeah mm. and I, you know to fix it you have to relocate pivot points and things like that and it's beyond the understanding of your average enthusiast. And to me, it's, I don't know, there's, like, fundamentally things wrong with it. Yeah. So me, personally,
0: I have this opinion that every platform has, like, a sweet spot of horsepower. For me, the S2000 is right around, like, the 350 to 400 horsepower range. That's where I feel like the sweet spot is. And I feel like for the FRS, the sweet spot, at least with, like, factory stuff, is, like, right around the 300 to 350 horsepower range.
1: Yeah, I think you're probably correct about that. Yeah,
2: I, I... I think of it as well, but I think of it more just from layman's terms in terms of just grip and usability. But I I think Mike's point is maybe above my knowledge base in terms of how that power level affects the chassis and the dynamics on the track. I know, for example, from the GTR tuning that we do, its ability to put power down to the ground, you almost don't have that limitation, whereas 800 horsepower in an S2000, you just can't deploy the power. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the GTR, you can throw whatever you want at it and it grips. But yeah, I think there's a whole different dynamic when you start getting into if you can deploy the power, still is there really a threshold on the track of, of what's desirable? Like yeah. so so Mike, in your case, taking that same example, for a time attack GTR, if you remove boost lag from the equation, is there a theoretical max where if you go past that it's not effective? I know in terms of turbo sizing it is, but if if theoretically you had, you know, some system where you didn't have a lag, would you cap it at a certain point?
1: Um I mean to me like the sweet spot for a GTR is like a thousand horsepower but it's for other reasons. Okay. Cuz when, when you get you get above a thousand horsepower you just start breaking everything and um, fair enough. even if you spend all the money and all the best parts your reliability is to like where it starts to not get fun anymore and you're building like a one lap time attack wonder or something like that. Yeah. But I think a, a thousand horsepower is uh, you know with a properly built GTR is like Stone reliable, fun, and... Yeah, it can be, yeah. Uh, but So it's kind of a different reason. Sure. But, you know, getting back to what you said, like, maybe the... Uh, yeah, it's almost like there's no limit to how much power you could put down, like, uh, practically, anyway.
2: It's an amazing car for that, yeah, between all the factors. And, and there aren't that many cars. You can fit a 345 wide tire with factory fenders. In GTR, that just, like, it might as well be a factory tire size, the way it fits on there. So you, you have you know, no limitation in terms of dimensions, in terms of any, any factor of mechanical grip, and the car just takes it. But you know the, the other interesting topic I always find is um, enjoyment factor. You, know, you were saying at a certain point, it's not worth it anymore. It doesn't become fun. And I think there's, there's a lot to that. I don't know how much you guys talk about that on the podcast, but I feel like from my side, one of the things that I always find interesting in the GTR world is we have a lot of customers that, I think everyone or a lot of people in the car world, they're just inherently competitive. So they go online and they see, oh, this guy's got X amount of horsepower. That must be the way to build a car. And then I'm fortunate enough to get to drive a lot of these cars on public roads, and I can tell you, at a certain point, it's not fun anymore. Like yeah, at a certain exactly. point, it's not a car you actually enjoy driving. And I don't know like how much that's really talked about, but my experience is that it's not talked about as much as it should because. If you drive a R35 GTR, besides the racetrack, if you drive it at all in the street, especially if you're in California, above 800, it's just not even enjoyable. Because usually at a certain point, you start trading off some boot slag as well. But aside from that, like when, when I drive a car, I enjoy when I'm on throttle, when the car's accelerating. And if you just think about just the math on it, if you're you know doing 60 miles an hour on the freeway and you want to punch it for four seconds, the speed you're going you're in a whole lot of trouble yeah. uh once you're over a thousand and I've, I've been there and i'm lucky i still have my license because you know you it goes very fast very quickly and you also have to see the road differently you have to see quite quite far ahead of the road because it kind of time warps you into place so it's one of those things that um it's not safe to do and i probably won't be doing it again anytime soon but uh it's also not fun. Like you get to a point where you actually, in my opinion, are ruining the the factor of the car. And you get to a point where, when you learn these things, at least in my case, I feel like when I learn through these experiences of doing a thousand horsepower cars, I start to really appreciate the cars that are lightweight and are 300 to 400 horsepower mm-hmm. because you can use them a lot more and you can feel like you're actually driving them instead of just wasting great engineering in a car that you can never open it up. Yeah.
1: Or don't you find as you get older, you kind of build a different kind of car too? Like, I know for myself, when I was in my twenties, I was always trying to build like something that was the king of the street, and, it, and that would be like a five or six hundred horsepower front wheel drive Sentra. stupid <laughs> car. Yeah, and, and you know, it's like to get the kind of turbo, the flow, to get the to produce that power, it's like nothing below four thousand rpm kind of thing, and it's yeah. like. Blah. <laughs> and then now that you're older now that I'm older anyway I, I kind of build my motors for response and torque and maybe I give up a 100 horsepower to the king of the street kind of guys Yeah. And, um,
2: part of the beauty of getting older is you stop giving a shit and I, I think that's probably the key thing is like you start doing things just not because someone said it was cool not because you're trying to fit in with the crowd or trying to do what others do you do it because you know what you like I think there's something to be said about knowing what you like and you know, having that experience of building something that's fun that's not meant to impress anyone besides just to have a good time on a Sunday and, and yeah. drive.
1: Well, well, I, you, I think you the torquey responsive cars are way more fun to drive yeah. than. Um, well, modern technology
0: power. now allows you to do that. Like there's turbo technology now that exists that didn't exist back then where you no. can kind of, for sure, you know, you can have that response but still have decent amount of power as well.
1: Well, well it's like mm. my, my Evo 9, it makes 400 wheel horsepower on pump gas. But the power starts, um, I don't know, below three, and it pulls to eight, and yeah. it's super responsive, and that car is so fun. But in my 20s, I probably would have built a 700 or 800 horsepower Evo that uh, would totally suck, and I'd have to drive around with C16 yeah. all the time. <laughs> <and Yeah. laughs>
0: I mean, so one thing that's interesting to me, both of you guys have been in the industry for, for quite a while. You know, there's a lot of people that get into it for a little bit, and then they kind of, like, phase out, you know, over time. Whereas, you know, Ben, like yourself, and with Mike, you guys have been in it for 20-plus years now, you know, and and you guys kind of have a, a little different perspective than some other people. I mean, I'm sure you know a lot of people that, you know, you were doing car stuff with early on that probably don't even own a performance car at all anymore.
2: Yeah, I guess I never grew up in that respect, yeah. which is good. I mean, I, it's funny, I still have a lot of the same hobbies and things that I liked when I was 20 and now I'm 40 and uh uh maybe being in the industry has also kept me young in some respects you know I I I still like the things that I like and I'm around people that like them and I I feel like that's a good thing it's a good thing to uh to, to be in a world where you're passionate about what you do and and you know the only the only downside to that is that you get jaded really fast and you're always searching for that next you know hit on the crack pipe you're always searching for what's the next new thing because at least in my case, when I look back over what I've done, I've never really done the same thing for too long. We've right. always either evolved to different car platforms, or in this case, you know, with Unplugged Performance going into the Tesla stuff, which is the new frontier. I wouldn't be happy just doing the same thing I was doing 10 years ago, five years ago, or even three years ago. Uh, that's the only downside to it. Is I think if you really are, you know, an enthusiast and are into what you're into as a hobby it sometimes conflicts with, with good business because you're chasing your own ambition of what you find cool from a hobby standpoint, not looking at it in the numbers and saying, Oh, I'm going to make a bunch of money if I sell this thing that's trendy today. Right. Um, so that's, I suppose that's the pros and cons. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate that, uh, I'm definitely fortunate that I'm, I'm doing it for 20 years because there unfortunately are not that many people that have, have survived. Um, some cases people get tired of it, and in some cases the industry is just really it's a difficult industry it's yeah. very hard to survive
0: yeah no it really is you know and you know being here in california with some of the things that are kind of enforced stronger here than in other places it's a yeah. particularly hard place to be a car enthusiast as well
2: yeah i don't have any uh... uh concerns about decibel ratings on my teslas so <laughs> yeah. i think i'm okay on on the carb stuff and everything else right now yeah but now i feel you yeah california can be very challenging for that so, you know,
0: in terms of California and Tesla performance, I guess there's no real emission standards at all for electric vehicles, if I'm not mistaken.
2: What emissions? So
0: Yeah, yeah, so it pretty much, like, kind of opens the door for a lot of different possibilities
1: here. Just what the driver makes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, I mean, so from, from your standpoint, you know, obviously you guys started Unplugged, what, in 2013, yeah. 2014 or yeah, so? Yeah, exactly okay um, you know how have you seen the electric car I guess performance threshold
2: keep getting getting pushed over those years it's terrifyingly good yeah like it's it's so good that it's scary and what I mean by that is that it, it's changing so rapidly and What I mean by scary is what you're seeing with that will, I think, be the same with autopilot. I think right now autopilot and self-driving are these concepts that seem very far-fetched and very far in the future, and there's a lot of negative press on them. But the one thing that I know for certain, and I'm also a bit biased because I'm neighbors with a company that when I moved here was learning how to fly rockets and then figured out how to land rockets, and now lands rockets and no one even cares anymore. (laughs) Uh, So I I happen to be a believer of... um, elon musk and his companies and their ability to solve challenging technology that no one else can solve but in terms of the power equation it's the same thing as the autopilot equation what we're seeing is a rate of change that's so fast that in some cases you almost kind of wish you could slow it down and savor the moment because we're going to transition very rapidly from electric cars being terrible to electric cars being great to every car in the road being electric and autonomous like these things are going to happen quickly I think much faster than people are recognizing, and I think just the evolution of the performance is easy to see. You know, when we started in 2013 with the Model S, it was fast, but it, you don't, you weren't seeing YouTube videos of it beating every Ferrari and Lamborghini in a drag race. and now you're seeing that with Model X SUVs that are 6,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was always something that it wasn't good at, like we were saying earlier, you know, in the beginning. It was just pretty good. And then it became like the best drag racing car ever, zero to 60. But then you say, oh, you know, it's only one gear and kind of loses power as it gets up at higher speeds and the cooling's not good and you can't run a lap at the Nurburgring and so on and so forth. And now, like, it's seemingly whenever Tesla wants, they can just crush at any category they want. The Nurburgring thing is the perfect example where, you know, a year ago, no one could even say that Tesla can make a lap around the Nürburgring without, you know, having cooling issues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, without much thought behind it, seemingly, one day Elon was like, okay, you know, Porsche is going to become a challenger to us. He's, he put together a team, and, like, in a matter of, I think it was probably a matter of weeks, not even months, they threw together a car, sent it to Germany, and just absolutely decimated Porsche's uh, lap time. Right. And Before that, there wasn't even any story of any Tesla doing anything noteworthy at the ring. So it it seems like if they want to focus on an aspect of performance, they can just absolutely crush it with that little preparation. That's amazing and terrifying at the same time if you're a different car manufacturer, because I've never seen a car manufacturer move that fast. Yeah. Um, And the technology is nuts. Like the technology integration on these cars is another thing which is so amazing that it's scary because, uh, uh, for example, last week, They announced that every Tesla Model 3, and I think the Model S is too, are all going to get a 5% increase in power over the air via firmware. Wow. Um, And this is not a new thing. They've been doing this. And if you're another car manufacturer and you're trying to make a car, that's great. How do you compete with that? I don't even know. I I don't know any other car manufacturer that's anywhere near being able to just push a 5% power increase to everyone for free. And this is not the first time they've done it. Like, these, this is probably, I think, in some cases, the second time these owners of these cars have gotten more power than they have when they bought them wow. with no change in hardware. So they're able to manipulate all of these things, and the better the cars get manufactured, the more integration there is. So, for example, at first it was like this for power, but now for the Model S and X, they have um, dynamic integrated suspension that's also controlled by the firmware. And there was also a new story for the Model 3 where they were having bad braking distances in one of the... Uh, I think it was Consumer Reports gave them a bad rating for emergency stopping. They pushed mm. an update via firmware, and they reduced their braking distance just based on the firmware. No hardware change on the car. Wow. So already you have in, you have influence over braking, influence over power. Now with the new cars, the suspension is dialed into the firmware. where You can basically modify the suspension via an update. So in theory, you know, whenever they find an optimization for the algorithms of how the car handles itself on the racetrack, they can make the car dynamically faster on the track, which is also quite 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 interesting for us with Tesla Corsa because our last event we launched our first Tesla Corsa challenge and we're gonna do I think a probably a five event point series mm-hmm. and you know we're all figuring this out too because we have one event and everyone's putting down lap times and now those same cars are gonna come back to the next event with five percent more power, more power. <laughs> yeah it's really weird so the topic of you know how do I think about the acceleration of this technology and the change in power like it's it's kind of mind-blowing and a little bit terrifying because it's happening so fast. Yeah, um, it, the, the ground is moving underneath us in, in a very interesting way, and uh, you know, as, as a someone in the aftermarket, it's very hard to navigate this new world because all the rules are different, and it's it's challenging in every aspect. You know, in terms of not being able to just add more power when we want by you know putting on a three-inch exhaust or you know uh, increasing boost levels. Uh, to the fact that we have no control over power, and Tesla decides whenever they want how much power the car has. So all the rules are different, um, but thankfully some things are the same. Thankfully, you know, brake pad compounds and calipers and rotors and, you know, coilover suspension and tuning and all the fun stuff that we do there, at least that part's still the same for now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're gradually losing a little bit of control over how far we can tinker with the cars. So I, I think we're in a sweet spot in technology right now where we get the fastest cars we've ever had in our lives, Is still enough control where we can drive our cars every day and tune them. Uh, Another five or ten years, I'm not sure we'll be able to say that in the same way. So I think now is a pretty good time, but things are moving fast.
0: Okay. Now, if somebody, say, were to go buy a a Model 3 and decided they wanted to track it, what are some of the things that you would recommend they do before going to track it, if it's an experienced driver?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is the, the beauty of cars is that the answer isn't that much different from any other car. You know, your factory brake fluid's pretty cheap and crappy, Mm -hmm. so better brake fluid, high temp. Um, You know, at the same time, upgrading the brake lines to steel braided would be probably a good idea. Brake pad compound, depending on the car, you know, some of the... Tesla for the Model 3, they have a, a performance version, brake system, and then a regular. The regular one is not very good for high-speed braking. In fact, it's, in my opinion, quite bad for high-speed braking. It's fine for a daily driver. It's fine right. for a taxi cab or whatever. But on track, it's not good. Okay. Um, so it depends on what you have. You know, Brake pads are a no-brainer. Brake fluids are a no-brainer, regardless of what you have. Um, there are other ways to approach brakes. But I would say overall, I think if you have confidence in braking thats probably most important just because it's not fun to have a, a ton of brake fade and not be feeling safe there. Um, the other answers are always the same. You know, grip is important. If you're a first timer, factory tires are, are fine because you're still learning the car and your limits. But mm-hmm. tires make a huge difference for many obvious reasons as the suspension set up. And you know, there's a lot of ways to approach that in terms of budget going from you know springs to, to coilovers to coilover is you know, fully adjustable control arms to really be able to manage um, alignment setups. Okay. Uh, but it's all the same answers. I would tell you probably the same thing with any other car. Okay. Just another car. In some respects, yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah.
0: Okay. Now, Mike, I know that you got to spend a little bit of time underneath some Teslas doing suspension stuff. What's your What's your thought on the suspension design that they have?
1: Uh, I think it's pretty good, actually. and. Um, What I like about the Tesla that really impressed me is the whole car is really simple, and there's not that much to it, and it's easy to work on, and um, I I think the biggest thing for like a grassroots kind of driver is you don't have to worry about the powertrain, and um, I think the engine's much more reliable and simpler, and you don't have to worry about overheating, you don't have to worry about losing oil pressure, you don't have to worry about uh, maintaining oil pressure under high g-forces uh, wh- which gets rid of a lot of complexity and uh, you know you, you pull good g's you don't have to worry about a dry sump uh, you don't have to worry about all the plumbing and all the stuff that's you're stuck with, with the internal combustion engine you don't have to worry about peripherals like exhaust turbochargers superchargers all the heat exchangers to keep all that stuff from blowing up mm-hmm. um, It's just simple, and the main thing is just the battery technology, and keeping the battery cool, and keeping the inverter cool, and uh, you know that's improving all the time.
2: Tesla is solving that gradually for us. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. And So, so really,
0: you could you could buy a Tesla. Call up Ben. Order a bunch of parts, put them on on a weekend, and have a completely different and track-ready vehicle. Oh yeah, and the car is
1: actually really competitive. Yeah, because there's not a lot
0: of fabrication to have to do. Yeah, stuff Yeah, it's like that. pretty
2: straightforward and pretty predictable outcome. And you know, we're we were seeing uh, my buddy Kevin's car without changing the spec or the tires or anything on a daily driven spec that did a 158 five out of Button Willow, wow. uh, which was not too bad. No. And that was that was on relatively soft spring rates on our coilovers. It had a bunch of our components, but it wasn't running you know, race compound pads. It was running quiet everyday brake pads. It was mm-hmm. running street tires, not not slicks, you know, and, you know, drove out, drove home, and he drives to work every day in that car. Man. So you can, you can do that, and uh, I think we'll get them even faster in terms of a daily driven spec. In terms of a race spec, it just comes down to... Uh, you know how much downforce and how much tire you can get on there for the most part, and okay. suspension setup. So I think we'll we'll start going a lot faster. Now, and I know it, you've
0: had some experienced drivers behind the wheels of your you know your cars at different events. What's a lot of the feedback as far as the difference in driving a Tesla on track versus a traditional you know um, internal combustion car?
2: Um, there's a couple specifics. I mean, overall, of course, the entire dynamic just feels massively different. So if they're not used to driving an electric car, it's a bit of it's a bit of a new world they're stepping into, um, in terms of, I guess the most noteworthy feedback that I've heard, which I thought was interesting was just the, the degree of how much, uh, off, oversteer and instability because of regen. Mm. So, uh, you know, going through the chicane section and a little bit of liftoff on throttle, you get the equivalent of basically, you know, hitting the brakes at the same time and the car will rotate rapidly. So mm. there's a lot of just maybe relearning your, uh, your inputs uh in terms of you know balancing that that line to it. yeah because you know you're there's kind of a, a neutral spot on the pedal and then if you lift a little bit you go into braking mode and if you're down you're on throttle so it, it's it's very much uh a sensitivity of hmm. of driving experience that part i think is the most unique um yeah overall it's just everything about it feels different so uh we had uh we had carla drive and mike you could probably talk a little about the, the feedback she said but you know she's uh she stepped into uh, a standard uh, unmodified Model 3 performance a couple months ago and had, I think, two laps. And I, I remember she was saying, like, she was just utterly confused with how different the car was than anything she's <laughs> ever driven. I'm not sure what she told you, but she seemed, like, kind of uh, overwhelmed with how different it was.
1: Yeah, and like, if if you're a IQ reader, you know who Carla is. She's, like, our test driver. and uh, But maybe you don't on this podcast. But uh, she was saying that the trailing throttle oversteer was hard for her to get used to because hmm. of the regenerative braking. Yeah, But she didn't have enough laps. She said if she had, like, uh, more than two laps, she probably would have figured it out. But uh, I think it's, like, knowing where that neutral s- throttle space... It's probably like driving a 911 or something. You have to, like, uh, get the car, go in the straight line. He's got to drive it differently. Yeah, and then you... Uh, you know, you got to always do maintenance throttle on the 911 and stuff. Uh, I, I mean, I haven't driven it, but I imagine it's something like that. Yeah. Like, the first time I drove a 911, it was like, whoa. <laughs> but uh, once you got used to it, you could whip that thing around pretty quick. Right. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think the future is super exciting. Like, you know, how would you like a performance car that uh, you'll have to worry about getting busted in? you know like maybe the only thing they can get you for is no front plate or something yeah and then you know pop your hood that nothing's in there <laughs> yeah they go oh yeah um you have an illegal inverter or something <laughs>
2: it's also it's also nice that um you know if you when i was younger especially i used to like driving the canyons late at night and i always would feel bad about you know driving past people's homes Be on throttle lot. because yeah. you're loud you can get away with a lot more <laughs> I, stuff I than an electric did. car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you get a little bit more leniency from the neighbors and also from the police if you have a car that makes no noise, which is yeah, a nice little side benefit there. Not yeah. that I condone these things, but, no, of course but you
1: not. can get away with
0: it. Yeah, like PV <laughs> East is like right up the road from my house, man. I could go buzz through there at like one, two, three in the morning, and no one's going to know the difference.
1: The PV East was by racetrack when I was a teenager. I remember you
0: told me like car, like car, you'd seen cars flipped and stuff off of that before. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, I I lost a cop down there. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: nice.
0: So Ben, tell us a little yeah. bit about these Tesla Corsa events that you keep referring to.
2: Yeah. Um, so basically, you know, we started. We kind of created uh, Tesla tuning as a culture in 2013, and that has meant different things over the years. At first, it was just solving the question of can a Tesla be cool for car enthusiasts? And that was not an obvious answer in the beginning. It's not obvious now, but it was very challenging back then. So we would build custom cars you know, that we would go to the track with, we'd bring them to events like SEMA. In the beginning, everyone was looking at us like we were insane because they knew people that knew us knew us from the GTR background. And that would look kind of silly to think that we're moving from GTRs to Teslas at first. Uh, every year, that got a little bit less controversial and a little bit more of, of its own movement. But uh, the goalposts kept changing. In the beginning, it was just proving that they can be you know, its own tuning culture and its own kind of fun thing to do for car enthusiasts. Over time, the, the next frontier became track days. Mm-hmm. And that was because it was already obvious that Tesla can go to the drag strip with very little effort and put down very fast times. But it wasn't obvious that there was a track culture around the car. People weren't going out very much to the track. People thought the cars weren't capable of the track. And a lot of what we're trying to do is basically move the goalpost a little bit and, and just keep pushing in terms of uh how electric cars are are enjoyed and seen. So that was our our challenge that we set out for ourselves was, you know, now that we've somewhat normalized electric car tuning, how do we create uh, a, a car attract that culture? So we started a Tesla Corsa and the thought process was very simple. Um you know, back when uh when Speed Ventures started, actually uh Aaron was a customer of mine from Bulletproof, and I was twenty years old and kind of hand delivering him brake pads to his uh his magazine publishing office in LA back then. Um and I was handing out flyers with him for the first Speed Ventures events and I got to see how that how that grew with him and John back in the day. Um and the one thing I've learned about track day events are that you have your regulars, but everyone starts somewhere. Mm-hmm. And what was important to me wasn't starting with regulars. It was starting with beginners. And I, my hunch was that a lot of Tesla owners loved their cars. If you gave them an opportunity without you know uh, endangering others or having police giving them tickets, they'd be more than happy to go out to the track and drive really fast and learn their limits and learn their car's limits. But there was this maybe – my theory was there was this maybe intimidation factor of going out to a normal – track day, speed adventures or otherwise, and being on track with a bunch of, you know, rowdy, aggressive guys with loud cars that are driving up on their ass and having them feel uncomfortable. So what I really wanted to do was to build track day culture and the way that I felt was best to approach it was to have only Teslas on track, have it be very communal, and have a beginner session where you kind of learn the ropes at your own pace. And over time, I think that's gradually worked. uh, And we just finished our sixth event and now we're a bit more competitive as well. And we have a point series and we have an experience group and a beginner's group. And that's just my approach to it is I want to get first timers out there and keep it very friendly and not super competitive. But I also want to have people that come back every time that want to you know, challenge their personal best and go out there and treat it competitively. So we're mm-hmm. approaching it from both angles. And I think over time, the craziest thing for me, and you've seen it out there too, is the comments of guys that don't have Teslas when they start realizing how fast they're lapping, yeah. they, all of a sudden they're like, oh shit, You know, a Model 3 can, can do a 158 or whatever. Okay, I didn't know it could. Yeah. And uh, you know that's where the momentum starts rolling, and you start seeing not only Tesla owners going out to the track and feeling comfortable learning their cars coming back, but you start seeing guys that were never thinking about this starting to realize that there might be something interesting they want to try.
0: Mm-hmm. And what's been really interesting to me, too, is you know, for the Tesla course of events, there's a lot of people that come out that are coming out to drive with Tesla course that have never done a track day before. And from what I can tell and talking to them, they weren't really all that big of car enthusiasts before they actually bought their Tesla. Yeah. So that's that's kind of been the really kind of exciting thing to me. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, you'd expect that if somebody, you know, is out doing a track day in a Tesla, you'd kind of think coming into it that, okay, maybe they're into cars and stuff like that before they even bought their Tesla and, and got started. But it seems like a majority of the beginners that you guys are bringing out... Have never even had a car that's been modified before.
2: I had our first Corsa event. I had this guy, who was seventy years old, a guy named Jack, who drove out from.
0: Uh, it's the guy from, from Yeah, Portland.
2: Uh, oh, okay. Uh, him and his buddy drove out. He's retired, and he had a, a base level Model S, and you could tell like he had never been to the track or cared about any of this stuff. But I like that, and I, I, I kind of feel like the obligation of anyone that's in the industry for a long time is to find a way to attract new blood to the industry at least that's how i think of it mm-hmm. so i feel like a lot of my duty is to kind of try to safeguard the future of the industry in terms of bringing new guys out to the track who have never been and also creating new segments that don't exist like electric car tuning because you know to be honest part of starting unplugged was terrifying because i realized how good the model s was and for the first Couple of weeks or months, as I was formulating what I was going to do, I was thinking to myself, "Like, is cartooning dead?" I was really going through this kind of thought process of, "Like, like crap. Like I'm, you know, 14 years into Bulletproof. Like, is everything that I love about to die?" And um, granted, I don't think it will. But I, part of our motivation was to try to answer that question of how do you safeguard. Car culture when there's something that looks at first like a threat, like electric cars felt like a threat to me at first, and I realized they were good. So I wanted it not to be a threat, but to be something I could feel excited about. Right.
1: I mean, I, I had a discussion with Dave Coleman about all this stuff, and you know, like he's anti-PDK, uh, anti-almost everything. That's uh, he's like a traditionalist, I guess. Yes. And then I said. He was saying something like the PDK sucked. And I go, no way, dude. If you drive a car with the PDK, you're never going back. And he goes, oh, I suppose that you're going to be into electric cars, too. And I go, <laughs> well, if that's what gets the job done, and as soon as they're better than their regular car, I'm probably all into that. And Yeah, so yeah. that's like kind of like how he thinks anyway. There's truth to both sides. I,
2: I do think that the more that you enjoy technology The more that you enjoy the opposite of that at least for me i feel like there's always this kind of equilibrium where i like having both opposite ends of the spectrum and ending up somewhere in the middle i like Mm -hmm. having a car that's autonomous and a car that is slow and manual and i I, if if anything hopefully others like that too but i feel like in some ways the perfect garage is just that like a 70s or 80s slow but high on personality manual car and then a daily driver that has autopilot that you can just relax. I think yeah, that's a good combo. Kind of the
0: best of both worlds there.
2: For me, it works. Yeah, yeah, I mean, everyone's different, but for me, that's a pretty good combo.
0: See, next, Mike, we need to start the company where it takes the old cars and retrofits electronics and autopilot into them.
2: But then that kills the personality of those cars. I don't know. Well, you, yeah, know, you,
1: you know what I was seriously thinking of doing is starting an aftermarket company to make, like, all the, uh, you know, the good Hondas? the uh, added auxiliary rear-wheel drive electric power you did to them so yeah. you have like four-wheel drive hybrid yeah. you know ek eg kind of thing or uh, hybrid
2: conversion is the move it's just very PC expensive two. and hard to do yeah but yeah converting stuff to hybrid i mean that's that's maybe one of the holy grails of trying to solve for boost lag and everything else if you can get that sweet spot i mean that's that's the recipe for the 918 and the LaFerrari ferrari and all the modern hypercars so if there's a way to democratize that into the aftermarket that would be phenomenal yeah.
1: I mean, for myself, I mean, I've been hanging out with Ben some lately, and I kind of decided that probably my next car is going to be electric. Oh, oh, I don't want that on me, man. I'm going to get wait, death threats after all this. Your fault. <laughs> well, well, I'm waiting <laughs> to see what they come out with as far as battery technology for the next product cycle. Yeah. And, you know, as soon as you get cars that can – I mean, you're already there, but, uh, you know, like ones that could uh, totally whomp and do a whole session at the track or – go to Las Vegas on, on one charge and could take a road trip I'm shoot I'm there
2: we're pretty much there already just we're, the we're time right, is right now, there
1: like, yeah or just to see that all in one model uh, you know like I, I want to see what the new Porsche is like because supposedly that was designed around battery cooling and all mm-hmm. that and uh, you know the Porsche chap, chassis dynamics and stuff is always really good and uh, Their
2: price points a little tough to swallow, I think is the challenge. Beautiful yeah. styling on the car, but
1: I, I think it's almost the same as a as a Tesla. The
2: first I prices think. they came out with were close to two hundred, which was pretty crazy. I'm but not I sure. Think it's A lot less now. Did they drop it or they made a lower? Yeah, entry I think they level? made a lower end one. Yeah, they needed to. Yeah, because on paper the Tesla just crushes it on every category at that price. But yeah. if they came out with one that's lower, that would that'd be good. It's a good looking car. Yeah, For, sure. I'm
1: sure one more product cycle on the on the Tesla and they'll be right there with the you know, the sportiness factor too.
2: Well this is this is kind of the 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 media always gets this wrong. They're always comparing a future model of some brand versus a current model Tesla. And the crazy thing that no one can account for is what it's Tesla has up its sleeve because yeah. they don't they don't operate on a product year cycle. They just come out with a new car whenever they want. And you know, for all any of us know they can come out with another update to the Model S tomorrow yeah. and no one will know what's coming.
0: Oh yeah that's that's one thing I found interesting with you know the Teslas they don't really go by
2: model year, right? they make changes whenever they feel like it. Yeah. And that makes a lot of past owners really angry. Uh, but that also is what gives them the competitive advantage. Well,
0: well, it's like a normal piece of technology, like a
2: new iPhone. Could well, be the new iPhone, you know every year when it's coming out.
0: Yeah, that's true.
2: So Tesla, they won't tell you when it's coming out. And that's that's the controversy around that, is you can spend 100 plus $1,000, $150,000 on a top spec car. In the next day. Not know what's happening <laughs> and the next yeah. week. They're like, oh, that new car you got, that's old. And all the features are old and you can't upgrade or trade it in and get a better, You, know, you basically you can't retrofit. A lot of the cars you couldn't retrofit. So, you know, I came from a background of uh, you know, the Teslas and early on, like when they first introduced Autopilot, they were putting the radars and the Autopilot suite in the car and these cars would start showing up and no one knew what these like funky rectangular boxes were on the front bumper because they weren't activated and they weren't marketing them. They just <laughs> started putting them on cars. And they'd be shipping these cars, and I forget how much time went by. It might have been a few weeks, maybe a couple months, and the average person wouldn't know if, what they had. And then suddenly they'd say, oh, autopilot came out, and if you got a car after this date, you have it, which is cool for them. But then for reasons that I guess I understand that they don't have enough um, service bandwidth to retrofit, the problem was you paid the same amount of money for a car a week earlier, and you didn't have it there was no amount of money you can give Tesla to get that feature. So your car forever would never have autopilot. autopilot. And that would just crush the value of the car. And, you know, I guess Tesla, this is the pros and cons of it. The the advantage of this is that Tesla can innovate so rapidly because they're not playing by the same rule book as everyone else. So Mm -hmm. if you're a fan of Tesla or if you're an investor of Tesla or if you're just into technology, that ends up being a good thing in terms of net benefit because they can just, the second they have something new, they can deploy it. Uh, but it's it's a dangerous purchase because you never know where that change is going to happen, and if it's going to be something minor or something major that you can't retrofit, no matter how much money you offer Tesla.
0: Right. Yeah. So, like, maybe the current Model S's actually have three motors in them, and you just don't know. And you know, you
2: wouldn't know. One day you'll wake up, and
0: all of a sudden you have platt.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be pretty sweet. Yeah, they're, they they keep that stuff really close to the vest, so that that's the challenge with comparing it to Porsche, is that no one else plays by that game, so right. when you're comparing, oh, was this better than that, well, I, I, I'm not even sure if Porsche's selling the cars yet on the road. I haven't seen one on the road yet, but by the time they're out on the road everywhere, what's Tesla going to have then? I don't know, yeah. Well, I mean, just recently, the Model Y, you know, was announced, and I know that
0: you, you know, you guys here at Unplugged actually just released something a couple weeks ago, right? A or render. last week, right? Yeah, we oh, put remember. out a render yeah. of our
2: kind of game plan for yeah. that. It actually looked pretty good, actually. I, Thanks. Th- I That's, liked it. Yeah, you know, we, uh, we get to have fun kind of reinterpreting designs of cars and try to not upset anyone too much with our interpretation. But at the end of the day, the cool thing about the Y is even though I don't find that the factory version looks very sporty, the underpinnings of the car is almost the same as the Model 3 performance. Mm-hmm. So if we're seeing Model 3s lapping button willow sub two minutes, I don't see why a Model Y couldn't. Yeah. So we're we're looking at it in that scope of view, and you know the render that we put out is imagining what that will be. I mean, it's not just imagining. We're actually gonna we're gonna make that car in that spec, um, but it's a different way of looking at the functionality of the car because the car is gonna be tremendously capable. And thankfully, it's coming soon, so yeah. that'll be cool.
0: I think what you know, what Tesla's kind of figured out is what a lot of other car manufacturers have, and that you know, you have a good platform, spend a lot of money developing it, and then you can branch out into different derivatives. So you know, yeah. I, hopefully, that's what happens moving forward.
2: Yeah, I think it'll save a lot of the complexity of manufacturing for them to use a lot of the same parts and the same technique, and yeah. I think that's necessary. They had so many setbacks in the past that streamlining that seems to be a very yeah. good move. And from a tuning standpoint,
0: it's freaking awesome to hear. <laughs> I'm happy about that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. My, my hope is that we'll have a very short path to having parts on the, on the road. Yeah. The Model 3, everything we do as a, as a parts manufacturer, you can never move fast enough. And Tesla moves so fast that we're constantly feeling like we're trying to catch up with them. So I'm looking forward to anything that's an easier path for us. We could we could use a couple easy things here and there. I just want a Model 3 shooting brake, man.
0: That's what I really want. That'd shooting cool. brake, station wagon, something like that. Why why, awesome.
2: why is that design concept... So divided. People love it or hate it, but it's one of the most controversial design concepts, and it's very European. Yeah, it's, like, I mean, it's super popular in Europe. You know, like what is the reason?
0: Well, in Europe, obviously SUVs are a little bit harder to have because their roads are a little bit smaller. Fuel is a lot more expensive, so driving a larger vehicle doesn't make a whole lot of okay. sense. But people still want their utilitarian
1: space. They don't have trucks.
0: Yeah, there's no, there's hardly any pickup trucks, or yeah. if they do, they're smaller, smaller they're, ones.
1: They're marketed as uh, true work trucks. Yeah. And and there's still such thing as a privately owned trucking truck. Pickup Mm. truck, yeah. Yeah. Like, you don't
0: get even, like, a half-ton truck over there, really.
1: Yeah, there's none on the road.
0: Or if if they are, they're from military, like, U.S. military GIs that got one shipped over there.
2: It's interesting. I always find it fascinating how different cars hit different markets. Like, I always thought the Audi RS6 Avant was so badass, the V10 Lamborghini twin-turbo motor one. Yeah, and we just never get it. Yeah. So
0: I don't know if it's because the the cost to get something like that certified here versus how many they expect that they're going to sell doesn't make it worth it.
2: Yeah, I can't imagine AMG selling a ton of those E-Class AMG wagons. Yeah. Like, that seems like a pretty tough sell in the States. I think it's a cool car, but I feel like the U.S. consumer is just not into that.
0: What I always wanted, in Europe, they have the Golf R variant, which is a Golf R station wagon. Okay. You know, the Golf R is already homologated here to be able to be sold. The Golf station wagon's already sold here. So why couldn't they just... You know, make a few of them since they're already making them and send them over to the States so that somebody could actually buy one.
1: I think a lot of it too is the United States, we have the culture of multiple cars. Yeah. So you have your family car, you have your sports car, but in Europe, people, families generally have like one car.
0: Yeah. So you got to be able to do everything with it. Yeah.
1: So that's why like a wagon is more popular there. And to me, like the only people that want like a sports wagon are like, messed up in the head like me no, well they're like <laughs> dude me too man <laughs> they're like true car nerds and yeah they're, they're like Dave Coleman like yeah. ha, kind of eclectic taste and
2: uh. but I think that's also part of it is like maybe a lot of the reasons why like in Japan they had the Nissan Stagia Autek wagon which is basically an R34, R34 GTR yeah. I mean it's not really but it has the RB motor yeah uh, and they have the Evo wagon as well I think they have the uh, CT9A wagon which is the 8.9 um, and I think a lot of the reason why I find those cars cool is because it is a bit counterculture. It is a bit like if you're in the know, you know what's up. And if you don't, it just kind of flies under the radar. And yeah. it's, it's kind of cool. But by the same standard, if there were a ton of them on the road, would I want it as much? I'm not sure. Maybe part of the cool factor is that you don't see them. Yeah. I mean,
0: I guess for me... Uh, nobody likes being passed by a station wagon. And when you're in a <laughs> station wagon, passing people at a track or in the canyons or anything like that, it kind of like bruises bruises the other person's ego. And that's Tesla will do like, that I've too. i always love doing it. Yeah, that's true. See, so we need to create a Tesla station wagon. We one need of to my get customers custom did. Made.
2: Really? Yeah, I have a customer in the UK that did a, uh, a Model S shooting break, a green one. Really? Yeah, they used our, uh, I'm gonna our front, front refresh on it. It looks pretty crazy.
1: Man. I, I have a question. Is... How come Tesla people normally drive like well and you know not drive lame, but like whenever there's like an aggro asshole, they're in the Prius. The uh, Priuses are turd boxes. What's well,
0: because Tesla drivers aren't actually driving. Them yeah, up. we got autopilot. We're just super yeah, chill. We're just hanging out, taking naps <laughs> and stuff. <laughs>
1: and like
2: no, but seriously though, but like to, to, when it's the,
1: the stereotype that the Prius owner is a. Uh, Angry, echo nazi social justice <laughs> warrior. That's was a great ang- South Park episode on <laughs> that, too. <laughs> person. They, they buy a Prius with their self-righteousness. <laughs> and uh, When they see somebody in their giant supercharged Tundra or sports car, they want to cut you off and be lame. And
0: well, I guess like the, the Prius, to me, is like a statement vehicle, whereas the Tesla is like the researched smartest choice vehicle, I guess. Like, I feel like people buy them for different reasons
2: i'm not sure why you'd buy a prius right now so i have a hard time (laughs) with that concept i I understood what it was before tesla i'm not sure how it fits in with tesla at all right now because i feel like i mean you're kind of going halfway with it you're not really getting anything good versus the tesla tesla's price point's pretty strong
1: yeah Yeah. i mean do you agree with me about all the agro asshole prius drivers around
2: i don't know i haven't really looked that close you know you have a poll of prius drivers versus mustang drivers and we'll see what happens there Well, we'll have to see how that shakes out numerically.
0: (laughs) At least they do use their blinkers though, so that's good. (laughs) Unlike certain BMW drivers. I saw a photo the other day that somebody took a picture with their blinker on in a BMW and they sent it to a tech and they said, What's this weird green light that's on the deck?
1: (laughs) But if you ever mess with BMW ergonomics and especially with the electronics with that all that stupid stuff, they probably can't figure out how to turn on the blinker. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's why the Tesla's got no buttons. Yeah, that was the weirdest thing, man. When I was driving the Model 3, they weirdest no
0: thing buttons. ever. There's nothing in front of you. There's the screen in the center, and that's it.
2: It's really, really strange. The Model 3 is especially advanced and for, mm-hmm. minimalist, for yeah. Like, if you're going to drive an electric car, the Model S and X at least is somewhat normal. And the three is just, like, just stepping into the future and some weirdness that takes a little bit of getting used to. Yeah.
0: I mean, it was cool. Like, I got used to it pretty quick. Kids but like it. So wh- what I found interesting about at least the one yeah, that I do. drove, you know, it was a dual, model or dual motor performance package, but I didn't get to put it in, like, track mode or anything. I drove it in regular mode, and it actually felt faster rolling on the throttle from, like, 20 or 30 miles an hour than it did from a dead stop. And I don't know if that's just the way it's programmed so it doesn't just light up the tires, But, I mean, it had some some real, real rolling power once you got it going and, like, put your foot down.
2: I mean, they're they're silly fast in either scenario. Um, They're just crazy cars, man. The only thing I
0: didn't like, I did a pull on it,
2: and I watched the mileage,
0: available mileage, go down, like, uh, two miles. You're like, oh, no.
2: But what's also (laughs) equally strange, you know, when you start to live with them is if you go on a really long downhill, you see, see it two miles up. come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh man, I just found range. Yeah. Didn't do anything because the regen works pretty yeah. good in that scenario.
0: So, how does the regenerative braking work when it comes to modifying the brakes? Like, say you're putting a big brake kit. Or yeah. It
2: doesn't. Like. It doesn't uh, relate to the brakes at all. So okay. there's no change at all. Oh, it's just the actual uh, yeah. electric motor. Then. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. For brakes, I mean, there's no rules in terms of how to approach modifying electric cars and. uh we had to be very careful with that and mindful because, like, there's a lot of things that are just very new for us. So, for example, when modifying GTRs, we didn't have to really think about, you know, sensor placements and autopilot and all this crazy stuff. But, like, for us, we were the first to upgrade brakes on a Tesla, the first to upgrade bumpers on a Tesla. And all of these things, whether you like it or not, have some relation to how autopilot functions. So you have to really think about tuning in a whole different way. Um, And that, that was... A little bit scary because no one gives you the answers there we had to you know we basically i i should say in my case i personally would drive on these parts daily for like six months before i let anyone touch them oh. just because i wanted to see like how many weird scenarios i can throw at it and see what it would do because there's no one i can call a tesla that'll say okay you know if you if you change the brakes out to an uh, in our car we have a six piston carbon ceramic like how the car is going to respond in autopilot scenario so i would just like try a lot of fringe cases myself and be prepared for the outcomes and, and test it because mm-hmm. there's no rule book to these things. So aftermarket's very unusual in this respect, like especially now uh, we just um, out at the last track day event, we were screwing around afterwards and we did a uh, uh, a summon race, which is kind of silly but the, the new cars now will drive themselves and will drive <laughs> to you. Uh, so we had like six cars lined up and we did a summon race and like it's crazy where things are going and I always have to figure out all right, like I'm going to modify bumpers and wheels and brakes and all these things on this car and like now we're putting like you know, full out like functional rear diffusers on the car. But I know how to do that for when I'm driving. But how do I I'm just like as I think of these things I'm like, how do I think through every scenario where the car is driving itself without someone in it and what do I do then? Right. And that's hard. Like that's that's quite challenging to figure out because you could tell someone when they put lowering springs in their car, okay, your ground clearance is reduced. When you go into a parking lot, you might need to like slow down and angle it a little bit so you don't scrape your bumper, but you can't tell your software on the car when it's driving itself to you to do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so th- there's there's still a lot of unwritten rules to the future of tuning that we're trying to navigate safely, and uh, you know we're transparent with our customers as to what the car can do or can't do. But like quite frankly, I I couldn't tell you what the outcome is of you know slamming a car to the ground. Where it has no ground clearance and letting the car drive itself to you like the car is going to bottom out and do bad things so maybe you can't use the summit feature if the car is too low I, d- I don't know
1: will, hopefully the car will uh run the owner over if they make <laughs> it into a hella flush thing
2: yeah yeah the car would get angry at you for putting air suspension on it uh, but no no it, it's uh it's interesting to see like how the rules are changing so fast for what we expect of our cars and how we modify our cars, and I just I'm grateful that we can still do these things because you know, uh, at some point you know just the government you know is regulating so aggressively on tuned cars, and you know police are constantly discriminating against cars that have loud exhausts and all this stuff. And yeah. uh, you know I just like holding on to whatever freedoms we have because yeah. it's yeah, the, c- sure. the culture is important, and I think driving you know tuned cars on the road is part of the fun of of enjoying the hobby.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm real excited to see what the next couple of years bring. You know, had somebody told you back in 2013 that things would be the way they are right now with Tesla, I'm sure you'd think they were crazy. And then now, you know, that same amount of years from now, it's going to be. You can't even guess two, that, three, man. four times as much. It's going to be nuts. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited to see where that goes and really excited to see where, where Unplugged is able to take things.
2: Yeah, we're having fun with it. You know, every year is a different. A different journey, but uh, at the end of the day, car culture prevails. Yeah, we're always going to find ways to have fun.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's where the in- industry is going to go.
0: Yeah, it's it's going to be nuts. Like, uh, you know, I'm equally excited and terrified at the same time. But it, uh, I think it's going to be good. Just got to make the best of it.
1: That's yeah, it's great. Less stuff to break. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, Ben, where can people find out more about uh, about Bulletproof and about Unplugged?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're out there. Um, unpluggedperformance.com is the website, and bulletproofautomotive.com is the website. So depending on which camp you're in, if you're into electric cars and Teslas, Unplugged is your, your move. If you're into you know sports car tuning, Japanese cars, supercars, all that stuff, we do that all at Bulletproof. Um, so and if you're in L.A., you know we have a couple locations out here. Our main office is in Hawthorne. We also have a location called Bulletproof Auto Spa, where we do um, you know more of the cosmetic stuff, vinyl wraps. and uh paint protection and things like that um so yeah we're around we're on instagram facebook all that good stuff and yeah check us out all right sounds good well thanks so much ben and uh, we look forward to having you on
0: in a couple years to give us an update to see uh how things have panned out
2: yeah this has been fun Thank you very much for the opportunity. Of course. Good to talk to you. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot
1: and Adam Jubey, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the Pit at grid Live to say hello.